This is the Chats with James podcast. On this episode, James talks with Scott Mabin about how he joined the Espresso team and got involved in Embedded Rust, the working culture in chip manufacturing companies, and preferences about designing and building mechanical keyboards. This episode was recorded on November 8th, 2023. For more episodes, show notes, and the transcript, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. I've recorded a couple of these. It's been a while and Amanda's actually been helping me go back and go through the edits because I've been pretty bad. <laughs> I love talking to people. And so I'll record these and I've, I have a bunch that just haven't been released and then the editing and then like filling out the show notes and stuff like that has always been the, the challenging thing. So yeah, that's the boring part, isn't it? It's boring is probably not the right word, but yeah. tedious certainly. And my yeah. brain is weirdly bad at tedious. <laughs> I'm trying to think I went back and I hadn't, I actually didn't look at the date. I meant to go back and look at the date to figure out when, cause I knew like the way that I found out that you worked at Espressif now was from the blog post you wrote a while back where, where you went yeah. from like very community type work to going, oops, they hired me or not. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. They've hired me. <laughs> when was that? 2021, I believe. Okay. So we're coming up or maybe more than two years now. Yes, more than two years. I joined, well, my start date was August the 1st in 2021. So just over two years now. Very cool. So before we get too far, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? Yeah, sure. So my name's Scott Maben. I'm a software engineer. Uh, I've got five years professional experience with Rust. And I currently work on the Rust language enablement team at Espressive. Very cool. It's been interesting to see because it's probably from learning through your blog posts and talking to you or Jesse or someone else. It's been interesting to now in retrospect. So I've been aware of Espressive for a very long time. Like I think one of my older IoT jobs where we were using mm-hmm. the 8266 as a Wi-Fi radio and had some problems with some of the quality of yeah. hardware that we were purchasing. Not necessarily Espressive's fault, but mm-hmm. learning about them and then seeing sort of that community grow from the outside very quickly where it was well, this is this very cheap Wi-Fi module. Now they're part of the sort of Arduino ecosystem where now more and more people are starting to use it, but they're still using it as like a, an external device. It's still just a radio Yeah. to then people going, well, I can run code on this and then getting that working and then seeing sort of a, a huge proliferation of both like hobbyists, embedded maker type projects, but then also seeing ESP devices showing up everywhere. And then having ESP mm-hmm. sort of show up in the Rust world where it went from people going, well, can you support this? And we went, well, no, that's the extensive architecture and there's no LLVM back end for that. So there's not much to be done there. And then seeing, I believe you started this as mostly a hobby or like open source project. Yeah. And then some others being hired there and then Espressif being sort of the first loudest direct contributor to Rust from the silicon vendor perspective that I've seen. Yeah. When I was working at Ferris, my goal was always to try and get someone to be the first. And I, I think <laughs> Espressive totally surprised me because it wasn't anything that I was working on or the people that I had been pinging or trying to get to support and things like that. And yeah. it seems like that's sort of the direction that they've always taken where mm-hmm. I learned a little bit more about the software folks like Ivan being hired yeah. sort of in the same way that he was working on one of those other projects that I was talking about, like the Arduino support and people working for it. And it seems like Espressive has a surprisingly good culture around, hey, someone's building something cool with our stuff. Let's hire them so that more people can do cool stuff with our stuff. Yeah, exactly. I think you've hit the nail on on the head there with what's so great about Espressive is that I think they had some, I guess, good attitudes towards the open source community and, and makers, essentially, because there's a lot of silicon vendors around and not everyone has access to actually being able to use them. A lot of them are just, you know, they just have business to business models. They strictly sell to people who buy the licenses and things like that. Espressive took a completely different approach. Um, and I think that's one that's worked out very well for them is that they essentially open source 99% of everything they do and try and involve the community where possible. And that involves hiring from the community as well. When they, when they find people doing great work with their chips, they like to hire them. And that's how I got my job. 
So what was the project that sort of led up to that? So I, I had certainly seen some of your blog posts and your work on it and mm -hmm. then sort of silence and then surprise hiring. I'm interested to hear sort of like, where did you come into Rust and then how did that become Rust on Espressif and then how did that become your job? Yeah. So this actually started when I was back at university in the UK. I don't know if there's similar things. There's probably similar things, but you have the option to do a like year in the industry in between your second and final year. And I was working at an embedded company doing embedded C suffering slightly <laughs> as a, as a junior who, you know, was tripping over various memory issues. And I think uh, one day I saw on, on Reddit, a blog post about Rust, not embedded, but just Rust in general. And I was like, wow, this is kind of incredible. Why is no one talking about this? So I sort of backburned it for a little bit. And then I think, I forget his handle now, Japaric. Yeah, Jorge. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think he posted a blog post about Rust on an STM32, I think, I think an F1 board, if I remember correctly. And at my placement year job, we were using a F2 board, and then that sort of got the cogs whirring, like, oh, I wonder, wonder how doable this would be. I ended up finishing that year in the industry without actually writing any Rust, but I started learning Rust on the side during my final year. In my final year, we had like a final year project, which was worth like 40% of the grade. I actually chose to do that in Rust and I chose to do embedded as well. So I made a very, I mean, by today's standards, it's not a smartwatch, but it was, it, it did more than tell the time, basically. Very cool. You could actually load some apps on there. So Jonathan from Ferris Systems, he, he was working on Monotron at the time and I based my application framework around what he was doing there so that was really useful um, but i basically spent a year learning rust room embedded and i can't say i recommend doing that like learning rust is <laughs> it, it is a challenge on its own and then being constrained by what you're running it on and tool chains and things like that is is a different kettle of fish but i guess with the deadline that i had set it sort of forced me to do it so Ended up managing to do it, and that project turned out really well. I was, I was really happy with that. When I look back at the Rust code now, I'm not so happy about it, but I think that's just, it's, it's been four or five years. It means you've grown. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's a good signal. If, if you're looking back at your old code and going, <laughs> this is the same or better than what I'm doing now, then that's not a good sign. But if, if you look back and go, I have learned so much in the last four or five years, that's always yep. a positive thing. And it's interesting because I totally remember that project and I hadn't tied that to your name because I've yeah. hung out in the chat rooms or IRC and then Matrix doing blog posts and running the Twitter for so long that like I remember so many of these projects and it's so interesting to realize like three years later that yeah. that's the same person that I talked to for a yeah. lot about that <laughs> and, and putting sort of like that historical context to names of people that I talked to decently regularly now yeah yeah it's really cool so at this point i had graduated and i've always been uh, interested in embedded systems it's sort of like my grandfather was a electronic engineer so i always used to mess around with stuff that he had on his desk so it always interested me but at this point i had some esp32s laying around and obviously i was on uh, a very heavy rust hype at this point I'd seen the power of Rust and didn't want to go back to using C. So I started looking into seeing if it was possible. Uh, obviously, I then realized it was the extensor architecture. I did have an idea of using, uh, and this is so cursed, I'm glad I never did it, but using uh, MRustC to compile Rust and then using the GCC extensor toolchain to compile that C to a binary. but I'm glad I didn't have time to do that because I think if I started looking at that, I would have lost my mind. That just sounds like a recipe for hell. <laughs> so for like some context for people who aren't in this. So, I mean, so there's a bunch of different CPU architectures that are used for microcontrollers and things like that. And today mm -hmm. the most common one is ARM, like the Cortex M family of chips, which has become sort of like the default choice 
for at least the last couple of years and probably for the next couple of years. The Extensa architecture comes from some company that makes IP blocks for hardware and things like that. I can't remember the name of the company. You might know them off the top uh, of the head. Cadence or Tensilica? Cadence, yeah. yeah. Tensilica, yeah. exactly. Where they're a company who designs CPU cores, actually a lot like ARM, and licenses them. Mm-hmm. But these Cadence cores tend to show up in like chips that you don't realize have a CPU in them, but they totally do because they're doing DSP yep. or they're doing things like that. I see these, like the LX6 and the LX7 are specific cores from Tensilica. And I see them all the time in other chips as DSP coprocessors for these chips, because it's something that when people are making a desktop chip that has to do audio processing, like for a, an Alexa or something like that, if they want to continuously do DSP for audio and they want to have sort of a dedicated chip that's just yep. picking up words or phrases and things like that. And so you see a lot of these chips, but you don't really see them sold directly as chips. And I think Espressive is one of the few that did do that, where we're more or less... I'm sure there's a lot of design and engineering that went into all the other stuff because a CPU is just a CPU, but it was probably one of the most direct uses of those CPU or at least most public where they go, yes, it is this CPU. And you don't just find that out after you've signed the NDA and gotten like some SDK where it's like, ah, that's what this really is. But I think the downside of it being sort of a more hidden or behind the scenes sort of CPU architecture is it wasn't supported by LVM. So like the sort of the basis Rust is built on. And that's a huge challenge because like you said, if if you were just writing C, you couldn't use Clang to compile C code onto the SP32. Yep. If LVM doesn't know how to spit out code for that architecture. And we've had this with like AVR and yep. Extensa and a couple of other like safety critical architectures where they're widely used in a niche, but LVM is sort of an open source project. If no one's needed that and added that support, then it just doesn't exist. And that's sort of how things go, where they've always had that GCC toolchain, but also Rust. Well, now it's sort of supporting GCC, but at least at the time yep. when we're talking about two or three years ago, that was more conversation than than reality. Definitely. And that's one of those hard things where you go, it's so close, yep. but I can't make them go together. Yep. But that's one of those interesting things where it felt like that was just we got to the point where we go yeah it's just not going to happen like maybe it could happen if someone does a whole lot of work but i don't i don't know who would do that work like when would that actually happen and then and then espressive did that (laughs) where they they internally and working with some other folks added an lvm backend for the extensa architecture then all of a sudden rust just well i say just worked i'm sure it was a ton (laughs) of work from you and other folks but from the outside appearance it went oh no you can just do that now yep yeah i was extremely pleased when I saw the uh, announcement that they were working on LLVM backend. I'd sort of, I mean, you mentioned earlier there was a gap in talking about like the ESPRS stuff. It was basically because I was stuck. It was either use MRUSC in that curse setup or uh, there's no other option. So I was really happy when they announced that. Uh, so I think that weekend I'd started trying to use this extensor-enabled LLVM with uh, Rust-C. It was an experience, so I'd never touched any Rust-C internals before before that point, let alone the code gen side of things, which starts interacting with like C libraries and things like that, which is um, interesting. But it actually wasn't that many changes. I fortunately found, I think there was a patch set adding the RISC-5 backend mm. in upstream Rust, maybe like a year before, and I essentially looked at that and... It was mostly the same. There was a few other things that I missed, but um, I got there eventually. So I I was able to initialize the extensor LLVM backend within Rust, but the first version of the LLVM backend was tricky to use, to say the least. So it didn't support any debug info. It also used an external assembler at this point, so it was quite awkward to use. Firstly, trying to do bare metal programming with no debug symbols, no way to debug anything on an architecture that you don't know because nothing's public is a extremely challenging task. But after enough, I'll call it grunt work because it was just trial and error, essentially. I did actually get it to do a, a simple blinky application 
And I say it was in Rust. I mean, it was literally just pure register writes, but the file extension was .rs, so, and it was compiled by Rusty, so <laughs> I'm, I'm claiming that. I mean, my first project was figuring out how to take the Arduino libraries for, I think, the Teensy. Mm-hmm. And so compiling that as sort of the hardware abstraction layer and just getting Rust to the point where it could make, like you said, those FFI calls. I guess for you is raw register writes, but for yeah. for me it was FFI calls where I could call the set GPIO high or low yeah. functions and and get it to work. And like you said, it at that point it was ah, we have implicated Rust in this project more than being a project in Rust. <laughs> it, it was more a project that that was implicated yeah. in that. But at the time, that was there hadn't been that many people who had done that. This was maybe around the time where the Zinc RS project was going on. This is like 2016, yeah. 2017 maybe. Yeah. Where it was like some people had done it. And I think Jorge was already, Jorge at the time was a compiler contributor. Like he hadn't been working on embedded stuff specifically. Mm-hmm. He had just been working on the compiler while he was in university. And I think his university degree was also in embedded systems. So he was definitely yep. one of the first people that I saw that, like you said, wrote the whole thing in Rust. Yeah. Where I had the same reaction. I think when I saw that same blog post that you were talking about, I go, you can do it. Cool. I don't need, I don't even need the Arduino libraries anymore. You know, exactly. And I think it required getting the whole compiler tool chain working, at least like LVM at the time nominally supported Cortex M. Cause I'm sure Apple or, or someone else had been using Clang yeah. to write their firmware for Cortex M chips. So it was not surprising that LLVM worked for, for Cortex M at the time, but just getting sort of like the top half of the compiler stack was already fun. And then like yep. you said, with doing it with an out of tree backend where probably it wasn't perfect. And then, like you said, you were kind of blind to how the whole CPU was supposed to work. Yep. And I empathize, but, I'm very, very impressed at, at you being able to push through and getting that working. So like, mm-hmm. I don't have my timeline totally straight here of, so they got the LVM backend working prior to your involvement with them. So I'm guessing that's something they were doing because they yep. wanted Clang to work with in C for their chips and things like that. Or do you know what the motivation for them wanting to support LVM was? Yeah, so they definitely want to use Clang with ESPRDF there. Uh, C-based SDK. Even a few years later, we're still using GCC by default just because the backend is just more mature. Like you get smaller code sizes, better optimization. But there is at least now the option to compile with Clang if you want to. And that actually helps on the Rust side in some cases when, and I'll just explain a bit on the Rust, like ESP Rust side, there's two approaches. You can use the standard library using the ESPIDF framework as essentially the OS. Um, and you also have the bare metal programming, which we've been talking about currently. That was an approach that I always thought was possible. And some people had talked about that, of, of using mm-hmm. a real-time operating system to fulfill the standard library. Yep. So to be able to spawn threads, to have heap allocations and mm-hmm. things like that, where an RTOS provides a lot of those things, at least potentially provides a lot of those things. And I know the ESP IDF is based on free RTOS, which is very, very mature and mm-hmm. has a lot of those features as either optional or, or very straightforward to do. So that was one of those conversations where I've actually talked to proprietary customers about that possibility. Mm-hmm. People who are using uh, either in-house or paid real-time operating systems. So not free RTOS, but you know more commercial yeah. or application-specific operating systems. And going, well, you could build on top of that and and treat it like you would anything else. And a lot of those operating systems often even have like a POSIX compatibility layer, which means that porting it to the standard library, it may not be the most performant way of doing it, but it'll probably work. And it'd be interesting for a a proof of concept. And it definitely, I think, lowers the barrier because one of the first things you said is you wouldn't necessarily recommend learning Rust and embedded Rust at the same time. Exactly. I think there's actually three things there. For a lot of people, there's learning embedded. If you haven't done low-level embedded things where you have to know how serial ports work and sort of what is a reasonable thing to try and build in embedded systems. And then there's learning Rust, which for folks takes some time. I mean, it's, it's a language that sort of forces you to make sure that you really understand it. Otherwise, it will kind of be an unpleasant experience. Yeah. For better or worse. I mean, like, that's the reason we like it is because it doesn't let us mess up, which means... 
once you get used to that, it's very pleasant. Yeah. But but if you're new to it, it can be very easy to be uh, put off by that, I suppose. Holds us accountable. And then there's learning embedded <laughs> Rust, which has its own set of paradigms and how we design things and how we write drivers and how we write sort of things like that. And yeah. I've certainly always wanted to have something closer to like Arduino or CircuitPython where you go, look, you know something else. It will just work like it won't necessarily be the most efficient or perfect way of doing it, but Yep. If your goal is I know Python and I want to learn how to talk to a serial port or talk to a sensor or something like that, I think there's a ton of room for learning on that without having to learn two or three things at the same time. So that was always really good to see because for a lot of projects, that's just good enough. Like very few projects that I've worked on really yep. require you to push the limits of hard real time and the limits of what RAM you have available and every embedded developer will have a story where they had to do that. But so many projects are not that, especially for hobbyists and yep. things like that, where the difference between the, like mm-hmm. the chip with 32 K of RAM, the chip with a megabyte of RAM is a dollar. And <laughs> when you're building one of them, yep. that's worth your time. <laughs> if you're making 10 million of them, yes, you want to optimize that dollar away. Cause that's $10 million. But if you're making yep. one, then it does not matter. And yep. you should buy the fastest, most most full-featured device out there. But <laughs> you need sort of all of those paths for getting in. And uh, But going back to when you were talking, we, we had none of that. So like Definitely. you had mentioned that that was the approach was to sort of offer both of those options. But how did we get to that point where that was even feasible? Yeah, so I don't remember any specific milestones in particular at this point i essentially i think i started a esp32 hal at that point so i I don't think i touched the 8266 at all i was just mostly interested in the esp32 because it was newer it was dual core and i had one on my desk basically so i think i started that and wrote a couple more blog posts one about getting a debugging setup uh, working so I think at this point Espresso had released another iteration of the LVM backend which supported debug info which made things a whole bunch easier I think I also oh uh, yeah I tried to mentally block this out but I've just remembered I wrote a horrible horrible tool to pass register definitions from C headers and to create an SVD file <laughs> and that was a crime against Rust for sure. Like I, I need to delete that repo. I think I archived it, but I just need to wipe it off the face of the planet. But it did work, and it meant that I could debug using, funnily enough, Cortex M debug the VS Code extension. Um, and I supplied the ESP32 SVD that I just generated. I could see what all the peripherals were doing. And that made it really easy to start writing drivers. At this point, there's also a bunch of community contributors. One of them was Aaron Mills, I believe. Uh, he's not around in the community anymore, unfortunately. I think he, I'm not sure what he does now, but um, he was really helpful. He, he helped a lot with the runtime, uh, just the extensive runtime. So, you know, you have the Cortex-M RT crate. I tried very hard to decipher how on earth these chips run and setting up caches and things like this, because this is also extra stuff that has to be done with Cortex M. It's sort of out of the box. Like, you know, the Ram and flash will be mapped at a fixed address for the most part. I'm sure more complex chips do, but with the ESPs, this sort of has to be managed by, by the user or the runtime. And obviously the only runtime that existed was the C runtime. So writing one in Rust was uh, interesting, but I learned a lot doing that. That was really good. And then I think at this point, I did maybe one more blog post about Rust on on Espressive chips. And then I think at that point, Espressive reached out and um, said, we're looking to start a Rust team. Are you interested? And do you know any other folks who are also interested? That is very cool. Yeah. Do you know what prompted them? Was it them just following Rust like the rest of us were and saying, ah, yeah, okay, I can see the value here. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. Let's let's start that going. Or was there like a customer that reached out to them or or 
yeah, I know you probably can't be too specific, but do you know like what started the ball rolling there? Or was it was it just someone at Espresso following the news like the rest of us? So there was a like Rust channel in their internal Slack and they've been talking basically there was a bunch of folks that were really interested in it and can see the power of it. But obviously it's quite a big task to you know, just to do as like a side project at work in spare time or whatever. So I think there was definitely interest there. I also believe there were at least some customers curious about Rust. I don't know if any of my blog posts influenced that or not, but I imagine there were just some customers that had heard about Rust and were wondering about using it. And I think that was basically it. Uh, I can't speak to what they were thinking before they hired me, but in general, they are quite a forward-thinking company and they think about the future quite often and adopting future technologies to be ready for when they are the present technology. So I think by starting the Rust team, maybe some people would say early. We now have like great support for Rust on our chips in various different ways. Uh, the tooling is great, and in my opinion, it's in a really good spot for, you know, just if you want to build something, take a look at a library and either choose the standard library approach or bare metal, depending on your experience level, and just go for it. It mostly just works. Very cool. So you mentioned you were at university at the time, and you were definitely working in a company that Embedded was relevant, at least that was on your mind, even if they weren't using Rust. What did you go to university for and what was sort of before you talked to Espressif and went, okay, I'll go work for a chip manufacturer and help them build sort of yeah. infrastructure that a lot of people take for granted or just use out of an SDK or, or things like that? Like, mm -hmm. how did you get into Embedded? You mentioned that your grandfather, I think, was an electrical engineer. Is that just something you'd yeah. always prototyped with stuff or, or built some electronics and you went, yep, definitely want to do that? I mean, less about where you're working specifically, but more, how did you get into Embedded? Because it's always interesting to hear how people got into that because it feels sort of niche, but also yeah. I, I feel like there's a ton of different routes that people usually take to get into embedded. Yeah. So I ended up studying computer science at university. So I didn't have a embedded specific focus or an electronic specific focus. It was just something that I was always passionate about in my spare time. I was always like messing around with mainly Arduino stuff, sometimes ESP-IDF uh, stuff, particularly towards the end of like my university career. Like I'm actually starting to understand programming. So using the full ESP-IDF SDK was a lot more freeing than, than Arduino. And uh, yeah, I mentioned that I, I did that placement year. I actually went back to that company for another year and introduced Rust at that company, which was nice. So I graduated at the beginning of the summer and I had the summer off and I knew I was going back to that place. And um, I was trying to figure out a way how I could convince them to start using Rust. So at, at the time they had just spun up like a, a new board revision for a, for a new product. It was using a Cortex-M F2, I believe. I looked around at the Rust ecosystem uh, so this was going to be Ethernet based. So I needed a network stack, a Ethernet driver, and a few other crates available. So I looked around, I saw small TCP. I was like, check. I looked at STM RS and I saw STM uh, 32F or Ethernet. Uh, I was like, check. And I was like, well, let's just see how far I can get playing around with it over the summer. So I ended up being able to bring out the board, get Ethernet working, you know, and a, a very simple, you know, I could just, I mean, I wouldn't call it HTTP server. I'd call it just sending, you know, fixed responses to make it look like a HTTP server. So I rocked up back at the job and showed them that. And with enough persuasion, I managed to convince them to um, to use Rust in, in this project. And I mean, I've since left, obviously, but um, as far as I know, the the Rust code has been deployed all over the world and basically just works. I don't I don't hear many grumblings 
uh, about it. <laughs> no one's reached out to be like, I can't believe you've, you've I can't believe you've done this to us. Like <laughs> you show up, yeah. you do this and then you leave. At least no news is good news probably in that case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Huge props to that company. Cause that's one of those things that I've always thought is very helpful for bringing in both interns and just new hires straight out of university is that you get sort of this infusion of new ideas where I've worked at some companies where the embedded team will be sort of this old guard that have been there for 20 years and they've always done it like Mm -hmm. this. And for some companies that works really well in, but it can also lead to, well, we just keep stumbling over the same steps over and over, or, you know, we've built a lot of defense mechanisms against that. But then as soon as we have to build something new, we start falling in the potholes again and things like that. But it's always been Mm -hmm. good to see. Like I find the companies that have the most sort of innovative approach are usually people who are bringing in new folks, either from other companies or yep. fresh out of college. Cause sometimes it just takes that as an engineer, you sort of learn like pattern matching. I don't have a better way of describing yep. it, of just going, Oh, okay. The answer to this question is this. When I see a problem shape like this, you do this. And when you put it in front of someone who doesn't have that experience, they go, well, what if we do this? And you go, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's one of those really neat, surprising things where even though they'll have, 10, 15 years less experience than you. They also have 10 to 15 years less biases than you. And it ends up being really yep. interesting to go, oh, I, get, I guess we can do that. Where 10 years ago, they looked at it and you go, no, you can't do something like that. Like that, it's not reasonable or things like that. But just bringing in fresh faces or, or fresh ideas can help a ton of that. And that's super good reflection on the company that you worked at that an intern could come back after, I'm guessing you did one year there yep. and then left and then come back and went, look what I have to show to you. And they went, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, let's do that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that's one of those things with working with interns. Like, you should assume that any interns you bring in will be sort of like a net zero to your team. Like, even though you have an extra set of hands, you're also helping them. And sometimes they're learning things. And sometimes, you know, if it ends up positive at any point, you go, great, that's wonderful. And if it ends up a little negative, you go, still worth it. Like from a hiring perspective or just sort of like new ideas or good of the industry sort of things, it's good to do. But occasionally you will have like interns or or things like that who come in and you go, yeah, you're killing it. Like, and most companies are like, yes, please come back. Like we would like to hire you for that because I've had a couple interns over the years and some of them were like, they were learning and they were doing the best. Some of them realized that that was not what they wanted to be doing. And that was a positive experience for everyone still. Um, And then I've had some interns that kind of in a very similar case, they came in, they built something, you go, wow, this makes my life just way easier. And I wish we had done this sooner. And I'm glad, I'm glad they did that. So I'm, I'm glad you had that experience and they had that experience because that's not an always case. And Mm -hmm. it seems like it was very positive for you and led to a lot of different things. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely, that year alone definitely cemented my love for embedded, even though I was writing C in that placement year. Hmm. It, it cemented that this is what I want to do. So it was, yeah, all around a very positive experience. Very cool. So now you're mostly working on sort of infrastructure and I'm guessing there's a lot of tooling that goes into that. There's a lot of mm-hmm. development for SDKs and things like that, or mm-hmm. different vendors call it different things, whether it's like the yep. BSP or the HAL or, or the SDK and things like that. But basically the goal of most chip companies is we want to make it as easy as possible for you to use our stuff because yep. for a lot of companies, especially smaller companies, they don't have sort of the teams to build a driver for everything mm-hmm. or, or at least they have it in their mind that they can't do it and things like that. And for a lot of things, it, it makes a ton of sense. You you want the person who knows the most about the chip to write the driver, but also you can sort of get into a mindset where like they're trying to help everyone equally <laughs> and a lot of projects yeah. you don't necessarily want that you want a really specific thing and i'm always interested to hear what the experience is like from the other side because i've never worked at a chip manufacturer i've only ever been mm-hmm. a customer of a chip manufacturer and i've i've written a lot of drivers myself and i've grumbled about vendor tooling <laughs> and drivers and documentation a lot before but what is it like from the other side because i think even if there are so many embedded engineers out there, there are very, very few people who work at one of the 15 or 20 public facing chip manufacturer companies working Mm -hmm. on, on drivers and things like that. So what is going from someone who built an application or a firmware or something like that to someone who's providing tools for other people? What is that mindset shift 
Like when you hear us complain in the matrix room as people who consume those libraries, maybe not about ESP so much, but about other vendors, we certainly have complained. <laughs> what is that mindset shift like, or, or what sort of like that cognitive dissonance that you've seen? Yeah, I think this is actually kind of a different answer to maybe what someone working on the C SDK would give, because I think the Rust team works very closely, like very closely with the community. Obviously, the ESP IDF is very community driven as well, but they don't typically hang out in chat channels and, and talk to, you know, to the community like face to face. It's more like a more you know, someone files an issue, they'll talk to them all. We have the forums, which is a little less formal, but not as informal as like, you know, the matrix channels that we have. Yeah. For a lot of Silicon vendors, there's sort of two ways in. There's either we have a community forum somewhere that usually mm -hmm. is well, well maintained, but you see a lot of the same questions over and over, or yep. some of them will only have call your field rep. Like if you are a large enough company that we care about the number of yep. orders that you make, you call someone on the phone and they will write the code or the proof of concept support for you. Mm -hmm. But for especially a lot bigger companies, that's the only interface they have with their customers. So if you're a hobbyist, the answer is have fun. Like, oh, we don't support yeah. that. Okay. Like, but it's been really refreshing to see y'all hang out in the main rooms and host your mm -hmm. own main room where we can say, oh, if you have a question about that, these are the best people to go talk to and they will yeah. actually make things work. Yeah, and I think you have a really good point about the hobbyists. And if you as a silicon vendor are trying to make it as easy as possible to use your chips, maybe getting feedback from experience and better developers isn't, I mean, it's always a good place to get feedback from. But, you know, if a hobbyist can use it with minimal experience, then you've essentially achieved your goal of creating easy to use drivers for your chips. So I, I really think that feedback from them is is really helpful. Yeah, and it's one of those things where there's a surprising amount of habit and pipeline that not everyone values, but it, it's one of those, if you are in university and you're learning a chip and you have a really good experience with one of them, when you go to your next work yep. project and they go, well, what chip should we use for the next product? And you go, I've used this one and it's pretty good. That's going to get weighted really, really heavily versus if you went, no, we yep. should not use that chip. I tried to use it and it was miserable. Even if your company is large enough that you would get this kind of custom support, it doesn't take much to rule out someone. Like I've been in those decisions where you go, well, we make a PowerPoint slider, like an Excel table where you go, these are our five options, pros and cons for each of them. And like three of them are going to get ruled out immediately because of price or features or, or whatever. And then usually there's this conversation where if two or three of them meet the goals and price and features and stuff like that, it's going to come down to what have you done before either at the company or, or someone goes, yeah, I know how this works. Or just someone goes, oh, I had a good experience. Like I've absolutely worked somewhere where we ended up using, I think Nordic and Zephyr at the time, because I could drop into their IRC room and one of their devs was hanging out in the IRC room and I had a weird niche yeah. problem and they're like, Oh, it's probably this. Oh, we'll file a bug. Yeah, you tripped over that weird thing. It shouldn't be like that. It was it was Bluetooth and I was using some Android phone that handled Bluetooth weird. And so they went, yeah. well, the phone <laughs> shouldn't be doing that, but we also shouldn't be freaking out about it. And that was just such a positive. It only takes one of those positive interactions to go, okay, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll base our entire product stack on that chip. So it's really good to have those positive interactions. And if you're not like Broadcom, where you're like, well, we won't talk to you if you're not buying a million chips or something like that, yeah. then those can make a huge amount of difference because the world is relatively small and we embedded engineers talk to each other and people will tell stories. Yeah. Where I've been in yeah. forums either on like Slack or like or Matrix or things like that, where someone's like, I'm thinking about this chip and me or someone else has gone. No, do not like unless you have this really specific need, which, yeah, then you probably will put up with it because that chip is that good at that. Like you go, just pick this one. It's yep. maybe a little more expensive or you'll have to work around this, but like, yeah, people talk, especially with the internet. And it's been interesting to see some companies get that. And some companies really not get that. Yeah, definitely. It seems more common with sort of what I think of like the open source rust ecosystem, someone like Dario or Derbio from embassy or mm -hmm. some of the other folks that contribute to open source hardware abstraction libraries or drivers libraries and things like that, where you're, you're aiming to put out a library that works for people, but there's nothing really special. Like 
you have the same audience of you want this to be good for people because you want them to use it or it works for you and you're happy to take things that work for other people and versus sort of a more yeah i i guess that's also the goal of silicon vendors i suppose but that feedback loop is much shorter because you're operating the same way and and that's one of those things that has been really positive is that i have seen the rust team at espressive pick up a lot of the mannerisms from the embedded rust ecosystem where there's not like anything hugely special about what we do but there's you know like okay we'll work on github in this way and we structure things like this and we put priority and focus on these kind of things and it's always interesting to see reflected values i don't have a better or less buzzwordy term than that but like maybe that's just me because i i come from that rust background it's always interesting mm-hmm. to see someone match so closely where i saw that in the esprs repo when it was just independent contributors and when Espresso hired a lot of those teams. I was in some of those conversations where they go, well, how do we present our official Rust face to that? And the answer was, well, we'll just move the ESPRS repo into the Espressif namespace, and then you just mm-hmm. keep working the way you were working, because obviously that's how you interface with that community and sort of understanding your customers, or at least the subset of customers or the specific community that you're addressing is really big because it just lowers that like impedance mismatch of oh i have to go file tickets or like by email or by forum and we go well in embedded rust yep. don't use forums a lot we use like github issues or chat and things like that it's been interesting to see someone match the community so directly yeah i think a lot of that is because we come from that community so the core contributors in the rust team at espressive me jesse and bjorn are all hired from the community. So we essentially already have those values and now we're just, I guess, presenting them, but from Espressive's perspective. Very cool. Well, I definitely didn't mean to make this all about Espressive. <laughs> are there any like particular projects that you're working on right now that you're really interested in, whether it's on Espressive chips or not? I won't tell your boss, but <laughs> are there any like specific projects or things that you're looking at, whether it's embedded focused or not, that's particularly interesting for you right now, or is it just focusing sort of solely on the, on the problem of how do I make espressive chips easy to use for folks? So I do have one project in mind. So I I do enjoy like developing libraries and drivers and things, but there is just something different about, you know, building an application or, or, you know, building something that I, I miss. So I'm currently looking at building my own mechanical keyboard based on a ESP32 S3. And I kind of just want to essentially soup it up a little bit, get a nice display on there, get like a nice um, volume control knob. I've done a few PCBs in my time, but I would not be confident in any PCB that I create. So this is a learning experience for me at the moment but yeah i'm I'm enjoying that i'm working on that on the side is there a specific form factor you're going for because i know there's there's a million choices you could make in keyboards i'm interested in what Mm -hmm. i've built a keyboard both like i bought a kit and then put software on it and then i've designed some like smaller keyboards and things like that more like keypads which has been really fun Mm -hmm. but i know (laughs) just getting into that realm there's some people who are very like it's like people who are enthusiastic about cars or cooking or coffee or something like that there are opinions on the internet so (laughs) yeah what design decisions or what like choices have you made for your keyboard that makes it yours specifically so it's a variant of a 10 kilo so i'm essentially modifying it to fit my needs um but i currently have a 60 percent mechanical keyboard which i like but i miss the arrow keys and i also miss the iso enter you know like the big chunky enter key you are UK based. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So those are my original goals. And then I started doing the schematic and seeing how many free pins I had on the, on the S3. I was like, oh, I could maybe get a display on there. I could maybe do some other things, which led me to start looking for displays. And I think I already ranted you about this, about no displays have the uh, tear effect pin. Mm. exposed on on modules so i hate screen tearing (laughs) like with a passion that's been a a fun adventure yeah that's the main thing i'm working on on the side at the minute other than just um yeah just cracking on with esp rs stuff basically so you chose the s3 which i think does have bluetooth 
Yes. So is the intent to be USB and Bluetooth yeah. or just a Bluetooth? Uh, both. So it also has a USB interface as well. So it'll be USB and um, and Bluetooth. Very cool. Yeah, I, the keyboard I bought the kit for and that I designed, I used an NRF52 specifically because it has USB and Bluetooth. Yeah. There's a really cool library called Keyboron. Yeah, I heard about that. It's been a while since I used it, so I don't know if it's the current best effort, but it works really well for USB, but I've never gotten it working with Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. Now that Embassy has a ton of Bluetooth support, I think I have seen people do like the keyboard Bluetooth profile and things like that. So <laughs> I, I think that's accessible these days. I haven't looked, but <laughs> it's one of those things where I built it and I went, well, I don't like this. I use my laptop a lot. I sit at a desk sometimes, but most of the time I'm sitting on a couch or in a chair or something like that. And I, I just have my laptop with just the screen on the laptop. So I don't usually carry a keyboard anywhere. And then I get really yeah. in the habit of using either like the ThinkPad or the Mac keyboards that I'm using. So I built this keyboard and I went, great. And it was also a 60% keyboard where I went, okay, well, I guess I'll figure out. I had some like meta keys for yeah. turning them into a, a directional pad and stuff like that. And I, I did that and I went, I'll, I'll just... I'll just use my laptop. Like <laughs> so that's one of those things. Like, do you normally use a mechanical keyboard or is that a, cause I, I did the project cause I went, that's cool. I could do that. And I did it. And I went cool. And it was like yeah. building like a, an ashtray when you don't smoke, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it was a thing where you go, that's neat, but I don't use that. <laughs> yeah. So I do actually use it. So the monitor I have is really cool. It's got a KVM switch mm. Uh, built in so I can switch between my desktop and my work laptop and still use the same mouse and keyboard and I actually wrote a tool in Rust like two years ago so the the interface to switch you can only use the buttons but there's also a USB interface like there was a Windows tool Mm. that could control it via software so I just sniffed the USB packets and then wrote a quick tool to essentially switch it to the inputs I want in Linux or Mac which was really cool. I got that working in like a day nice. with a like tray icon that worked on each platform, like on Mac OS or Linux or Windows. All thanks to, I think it was called uh, Tray Item RS or something. Oh, there's a Rust. There's actually a Rust project for it already. Yeah. Yeah. Which was pretty sweet. It was essentially just gluing things together and writing a couple of USB packets, which was, that was a fun project. Very cool. All right. But yeah. Uh, I do plan on using this keyboard if I ever make it and if the PCB works. <laughs> and which switches did you choose? Uh, I've gone for Cali Milky Yellows. They sound pretty nice. They're quite cheap. Okay. I think I went like linear red because I had no idea what I was doing. And <laughs> I, I've used a lot of the smaller like Kyle or Kali, like the yeah. the chalk switches, like the CHOC, which are like yeah. the low profile ones, because I was making a lot mm-hmm. of numpads and stuff like that. Yeah. So those were lower profile, but I had a whole pack of like the white ones, which are the really clicky ones. Yeah. And then the brown ones, which are the tactile ones, which are more thumpy, but they're still very clicky. Yeah. Like even the red ones are kind of clicky to me, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> I've never tried to use it in an office with someone else. And maybe if you're working from home, maybe that's good if you like a clicky keyboard. Yeah. Before I was working from home, I did bring my current keyboard, which is browned, and mm. I did get a fair number of complaints. So I, <laughs> I left it at home after that. <laughs> nice. Are you doing that keyboard in public or is that a just a for you uh, sort of project? It'll be in public once there is something to make public, essentially. <laughs> Uh, once I have a board, I'll just post it on GitHub, I imagine, then start writing the firmware, I think, is is the plan. Yeah. I did some hardware design in university, and then I didn't touch it for like eight years. Mm-hmm. And I think when I did it in university, I, I used like whatever the free version of Eagle was at the time. Yeah. But I started following a lot of people on Twitter who do electronics design, and I was really surprised at how good keycad or kicad has gotten in Mm -hmm. recent years and started designing my own hardware for the last like two years it's surprisingly accessible now especially because there's all of these fabrication houses that will even assemble a lot of the small components for you and you only have to buy two or five of them or something at a time yeah it might be a little more expensive than assembling it yourself but knowing that i'm not going to fry like half the board or have to debug it for a week because I didn't solder it right. Or one of the chips backwards or something like that has been really neat as an embedded engineer to go, Oh, I can, I can build my own glue. Cause that's, 
one of the things that like earlier in my embedded career, I, was, I felt very limited by you either have to buy a module from Adafruit or AliExpress or, or wherever, or find someone who's designing cool hardware, who doesn't like writing software and, you know, find a way to partner with them for those kind of things of just going, no, I can throw a microcontroller or a module on a board with some, some passive components and very quickly build something that's directly useful to me, which was a, I don't know. It's a very neat thing. And I feel like it was way harder, which is why I avoided it. But now it seems much, much more accessible. Yeah, definitely. So the first PCB I did was that quote unquote smartwatch. Mm. Uh, I actually did that in the web browser. I forget the name of it, but it was JLC. Is it like easy ADA or something? That's it. That's the one. Yeah. And that Honestly, it's probably not the best editor, but it did the job and the PCB worked, so I was I was happy with that. Uh, this time I'm using KiCad or KiCad, however you actually say it. And yeah, I'm, I'm liking it so far. Like I'm a complete novice when it comes to this stuff, but so far it's relatively easy to use and there's also a lot of good resources online. So yeah, fingers crossed. If I ever get this thing done, it'll work. Very, very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming to chat with me today. Is there anything else you want to plug or anywhere where you want folks to come find you or where's the best place to follow you and keep up with? I know you're doing the quarterly blog posts on the state of the whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Anywhere specific you want folks to go look or go see after they listen to this? Yeah, I I guess the the blog posts, uh, if if you know nothing about ESPRS, they're a good sort of time capsules to how we've progressed. Um, over the years. Other than that, I guess follow me on Twitter or X, whatever it's called these days. Uh, we'll we'll get the the latest as to what I'm up to. Very cool. Yeah, we have show notes, so I will put all the links to that in the show notes. But awesome. Thank you so much for being here. It was excellent talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Talk to you later. All right. See you later. This podcast is brought to you by One Variable UG, a consultancy focused on advising and development services in the areas of systems engineering, embedded systems, and software development in the Rust programming language, based in Berlin, Germany. Check out our website at onevariable.com or send an email to contact at onevariable.com. Audio recording done by James Munns. Edited and produced by Amanda Mirovich. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.